Michael McMullen. Welcome once again to the World Snooker Tour podcast. There are a lot of players in the game who have nicknames that they don't live up to, but this man is known as the gentleman, and I can assure you he really is. It's Joe Perry. Thanks very much for joining us, Joe. Good afternoon. How are you doing? Steady progress, I think, would be the way to describe your early years. Yeah. Well, I put that down to a couple of things, really. I, I, I knew I wasn't good enough to be professional back then, but the opportunity come to open the game up, and you didn't know when they was going to close it up again, so... My parents thought it was a good idea to take the opportunity while it was there, even though I wasn't going to be a full-time professional. I was still doing my education. They insisted that I finish that and went on to get A-levels and potentially more. But uh, So that's why I, I put a lot of my very early years down to that. I wasn't fully committed to snooker at the time. I knew I wanted to be a snooker player, but I had other things distracting me, like I was studying for A-levels and stuff like that. So it wasn't until about the third or fourth season that I really, really got my head down and sort of went for it big time. There aren't that many snooker players who actually completed their schooling and got A-levels. So how many did you get? Well, I, I took three. Uh, I, I got them all. Uh, law, sociology and accountancy. I, I really enjoyed the law. And uh, in another life, I would have like you know just put my cue away and, and gone to university and done that. It was something I really enjoyed. But, uh, you know, in my, my heart was telling me I wanted to be a snooker player. I'd been playing for quite a few years. I was pretty good. You know, at county level, I was like Cambridgeshire County champion and stuff like that, even though I wasn't, like I say, fully committed to it. And uh, we, you know, decided to have a crack at it, give it two or three years. I was lucky enough to have parents that could support me. And and I started to make progress, and the the rest is history, really. So when you say that you weren't good enough, was it a case that you felt you weren't good enough yet and that you felt in time you were going to reach that level of being able to compete at pro level? Yeah, no, I was good, but I, you know, I, I grew up as you, most people know in the same sort of age bracket as Ronnie Higgins, Williams, Stephen Lee, Mark King, people like that. And, and at a junior level, they was streets ahead of me. You know, people like Mark King, he was winning like British under 15s titles. So I never even got close. I never even looked like representing like England in any of the tournaments or anything like that. So I knew I was a little bit behind them. And like I say, that's because I wasn't. I don't know what year they left school, but I'm, I'm, I know for a fact they didn't go on to college and, and further education. So mm. they was putting a lot more hours in than I was at the time. And I, I thought I was, you know, good enough to one day catch up with them and maybe overtake. And uh, yeah, that's, that's the way it turned out, really. I'm going to ask you a trivia question here, Joe. Do you know who is the only player to have lost two final frame last black deciders at the Crucible? And there's a reason I'm asking you. Well... I was probably involved in one of them, well, this so it must wrong. be Steve Davis. Uh, yeah, I'm going to say, because obviously everyone knows about 85, yeah. but then 14 years later you come along yeah. and do the same. I remember your celebration at the end of that match, it was just fantastic. And I think maybe that was the first time most of the general public had really become aware of what a good player you were. Yeah, I'd been I'd been steadily making progress around about that time. You know, I'd, I'd established myself in the top 32, which today doesn't mean a lot, but back then with the mm. tiered system, the way we had it, it was a big, like, mountain to to climb and and once you establish yourself in there it eliminated you from all the qualifiers the year after and stuff so I'd, I'd got myself in that position before I got to the crucible and then yeah that one was the one that sort of elevated me a little bit into sort of people's attention and yeah it was a it was still one of the greatest games I've ever been involved in and you were never afraid of reputations even then as you showed in Malta a couple of years later the European Open you get to your first ranking final you beat Joe Swale Matthew Stevens Jimmy White and Mark Williams who was world number one at the time all of those guys were ranked 11th or better so you really were showing at that stage you were a dangerous opponent for even the best yeah yeah it was I was it all started to come together then you know I was starting to believe in myself a lot more 
I know you pick up a few wins and you hear people talking about stuff. And I remember one thing that's always stuck in my head. I beat, I beat Matthew Stevens at the Welsh from 4-1 down. And as I walked in the players' lounge, uh, I think it was Colin Lee said to me, Stephen Lee's father, yeah. he said, I wish you'd hurry up and get in the top 16 so we don't have to play you in the early rounds. And I <laughs> thought, wow, if people like that are, are thinking I'm good enough to be there, then that gives me a little bit of a lift. And I think little things like that just spurred me on because I've always been the sort of person that's played myself down, probably never had enough self-belief. And that's probably why I've, I haven't got the trophy cabinet that some maybe others have of my sort of standing. I've always lacked a little bit of self-belief. So when I used to hear things like that, it did sort of spur me on a bit. We were just chatting to him a minute ago, Stephen Hendry, who you ended up playing in that final. He beat you very heavily, but around that time, you were far from the only player that he did that to in a big final. Yeah, it was a a big match for me. I I wasn't experienced enough to, to be ready for that. You know, I remember... I remember being called out for the final and they sort of like the announcer, I don't know the exact figures, but they sort of said making his first appearance in a final and I come out and I was a bit nervous. And then they said like Stephen Hendry making his whatever appearance in the final. 40th, yeah, yeah, and I sat there thinking, oh my God, it was a bit like, <laughs> like you know, sort of rabbit in the headlights yeah. big time. And, and I, I just wasn't experienced enough to deal with all the other stuff as well as being, you know, the underdog anyway because of how good Stephen was back then. It was... Uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a big moment. I wasn't quite ready for that. A couple of years later, you went to the Crucible and knocked out the defending champion, Mark Williams, and you played really, really well. Was there a sense for you, Joe, around that time that every time you got one of these little landmarks, it was giving you a bit more of that belief that maybe you'd lacked when you came onto the circuit? Yeah, definitely. You know, I'd, I I just, like you say, I kept, like, every now and then I would just do something that I knew I was capable of doing, but it just reminded me that I was, you know, I was in the right company. I was sort of ranked where I should have been ranked, and I was good enough to be there. But I just never, never sustained it for long enough to really establish myself. You know, in the first few years, I was in and out of the top sixteen. I was, I'd get in on the back of a really good year, and then not follow it up. And and it was hard then because, you, you know, the the top eight was just littered with like unbelievable players and if you was coming up against them in the last 16 of events it was very difficult to to get through and win tournaments back then with the the system the way it was but that's the point isn't it you talk about not being able to sustain it I don't really think that's any fault of yours I think it's just because what was up there and what's still up there at the very highest level there are generally at any time in the game about six seven eight players who are out on their own and it's so hard to beat them and if they're the guys you happen to get drawn against it becomes very very hard yeah, absolutely. You know, and you know, to be the best, you've got to beat the best. And and you, I don't, I don't like playing myself down. But I'm a realist. You know, I know, I know where I am. And and you know, it's a fact. I, I wasn't quite as good as them guys. I was good enough to beat them on any given day. But over the course of a season, or if over the course of like a dozen matches, head to heads, they would come out on top. And that's sort of like the way my, my whole career's gone, really. Now, you got to a couple of UK semi-finals in consecutive years, Joe. The one against David Gray in 2004, you're wincing at the memory of it. Funny, I was just watching it on YouTube recently. That must have been a really tough defeat to take because it looked like you were over the line and into the final. Yeah, when they say you got one foot in the in the final, that was definitely the case for me. You know, that was it was quite incredible, really. You know, when I look back at it, well, it was such a missed opportunity and I, I'd, I'd played well enough to win that match easily. You know, I, I was better than David on the day I just I don't know I, like I say I'm a bit of a thinker and I, I just I just couldn't get the job done I'd, I'd outplayed him I was good enough to be in the final I was playing some good stuff that week I would have fancied the final I, I would have been going in second favourite obviously because at that time that's how Mr Maguire got his nickname he literally was on fire was amazing he, that week and yeah. he, he played incredible stuff but 
you know, we'll never know. But I, I, you know, what disappointed me a lot as well was the fact that David basically just rolled over in the final. He didn't sort of put up a fight, and that annoyed me because he he really dug in to get the win against <laughs> me, and he sort of like went three 0 down against Stephen and just decided oh, I can't win today, and and that hurt because I would have like you know given everything that that day, and uh, I probably would have come out second best the way Stephen was playing, but. I would have, you know, really enjoyed the day. When you say you're too much of a thinker then, Joe, I mean, how did that cost you a match like that? Well, sometimes you sort of get ahead of yourself. Instead of just like thinking, right, I just need to pop the red colour red and, and the handshakes come in, you know, I start thinking about uh, how good and how good of an achievement it will be, you know, UK final coming up and, and you just get a little bit ahead of yourself and you, you see all the great sportsmen, whether it's snooker or another sport, they just they just stay there in that moment and they do what they've got to do at that given time and don't get carried away with what's coming or what's been before. And something that's also like, you know, probably stopped me doing better than I should have done. How did you feel then the next year when you went into the semi-final against Ding Junhui? Because he was much younger than you. He was only 18 years of age at the time. You had been around for a number of years. But there was so much hype around him at the time that maybe, whereas ordinarily you might have been considered favourite going into that match, it wasn't perhaps the case against Ding. No, I, I knew all about Ding. You know, we'd we sort of crossed paths a couple of times. I'd, I'd been been up close enough to see him, like, what he was capable of. And that's probably to my disadvantage. If I'd gone in there with the belief that I was the sort of senior player, more experienced player, I, I might have maybe come out a slightly different scoreline that day. But, but he was just playing with such freedom then he was you know he was a phenomenal player and he, he went on to win the tournament and he was just yeah on he was just too good on the day it was a it was an easy defeat to take because I, I never looked like winning and I, I tried my best and I just wasn't good enough. Now then the world championship semi-final came around a couple of years after that 2008 my memory of that is you just got better and better as the rounds went on you were up against a succession of really tough opponents Graham Dott, Stuart Bingham, Stephen Maguire, who you edged out in a decider, and then a really close semi-final against Ali Carter. So what was it that made the difference in the end that got Ali through to the final at your expense? Well, he held it together probably better at the end. He handled the pressure ultimately at the end. But I look back on that game and I think where I missed the opportunity was I was 14-12 up and uh, we end up finishing the session 14-all. And I I had Ali on the rack... You know, quite it was no, not fourteen. It would have been would have been less than that, wouldn't it? But I think I was twelve ten at the mid session interval with four frames to play of the penultimate session, and Ali was like in trouble. He was getting frustrated. Few signs could notice. He was like head shaking, banging his cue a little bit, and I and I didn't capitalise. I had opportunities to go into the final session with a lead, and I, and I didn't. And I, I think ultimately that's probably where I lost it because he handled the final session better than what I did. And wasn't there an incident with a mobile phone going off at a really bad time? Yeah, there was, but I, I don't like use that as an excuse. It, it did it did cost me a shot and it did put me off, but no, I, I, th- I think I could have done more leading up to that point for that not to have been really an issue. Yes! One of the best matches from this capacity crowd at the Crucible Teddy Sheffield not only for the win Ali Carter but also for the loser Joe Perry You actually bounced back well I know it was a much smaller tournament but it was the first year of the Championship League and the final week of that was played immediately after the Crucible and that was where you finally got your hands on a trophy Yeah I remember that because it was a it was a funny way World Snooker decided to do it they don't do it like that anymore they sort of like 
the World Championship should be the big finale, the big bang to the end of the season. But they had to complete the Championship League. And it was a pretty, like, star-studded lineup. the final group back then. You know, look at it now, it probably doesn't look as good. But back then, it was sort of like a classy field. I'm not sure how many players were sort of, like, fully aware of how important it was. Because some of the players that were in it were already going to be in the Premier League, which was the big dangling carrot for that event back then. But I, I saw it as a massive opportunity, you know, and I, I sort of played really well. And I and I'd, I remember... Can't remember who the semi-final opponent was, but I think I beat Mark Selby in the final, and it was a tough game for me that because Mark was already going to be in the Premier League, and it was all or nothing for me. If I'd lost in the final, I would never have been looked at twice to get in the Premier League, and that was the big, the big dangling carrot for me with that one. And to win it and then get the spotlight all on you in the Premier League, which was huge at the time, was was massive for me. Yeah. People talk about being in the top sixteen and getting into the Masters, but in that era, it was if you were in the Premier League, that was what made you part of the elite and, and a real superstar of the game all the matches were live on tv there was i think a thousand pounds of frame and then big prize money on top of it so it was a really big deal to be involved in it yeah and and every venue was a sellout you know it was it was like it was like exhibition snooker if you like but like important and that year i played steve davis stephen hendry ronnie o'sullivan mark selby and I, and I really enjoyed it it was one of my like highlights of my snooker career really and I remember I come really close in the end. I lost five four to Ronnie in this. I got to the finals, like the top four go through to the finals, and I lost five four to Ronnie. And he was basically unbeatable under that format then, with the shot clock. That the shot clock was a new like invention for that tournament, and he was pretty much unbeatable. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I lost five four in the semi final, and and that was a you know I had a really good run in that. Yeah, for a tournament you might well not have been in. It was all bonus territory, really. Neil Robertson was on here recently, Joe, and he was full of praise for you, as always, for all the things you did for him when he came over to England and based himself in your area. So we're talking around the same era now that all that happened. So how did it come to be that you became a sort of mentor for Neil at that time? I'm not sure. It just sort of happened by chance, really. You know, Neil didn't base himself in Cambridge because of me. He based himself in Cambridge because of the guy that was running the club at the time a guy called Phil Mumford who's a very very good like billiard player he says you were a big part of the reason yeah to be yeah fair. well he, he may have known it. I didn't know Neil at all by that back then but Phil had been in Australia for a year and he, he said to the guys they was looking to come over and base themselves somewhere and Phil said why don't you come to Cambridge he, I think he said like Joe Perry's there and stuff like that and, and it worked out really well and especially for Neil you know because you know there's a lot of pros out there and I've I've come across them when I was on my journey towards like getting to the top and they don't give you the time of day you know it's all about them and they're quite selfish and and rightly so they're looking after number one but luckily for Neil that's not me that's not my character and and I give Neil lots of time it was obviously benefited me as well because he was a great player you could see the potential there but you know I I give him access to my table you know I was getting my table recovered four or five times a season back then because the Australian boys when I went home they was on it and they was just pounding it and pounding it and and they never had no money they couldn't afford to like chip in and get this done but I I didn't cross my mind at the time you know I was just happy to do it and I was getting good match practice myself and and Neil being the way he is I didn't like go out my way to coach him in any way we just played and he just fed off what I was doing and he obviously took a lot from it and uh yeah, he's gone on to be a wonderful snooker player. And that's the thing with him, isn't it? He's always looking to learn new things about the game and find new ways of looking at things. And I guess that's where that took root, wasn't it? Playing all those early practice sessions with you. Yeah, and and you could see, you know, I you not not on a not daily you couldn't see the progress, but but you know, month on month, season on season, just for them two or three first seasons, you know, you could see Neil was like he'd come over and like yeah, he was good. But we didn't know he was going to be one of the best ever. 
but he just he just worked and he worked and he and he he knew what was meant to be doing and he, he changed things about his game and yeah it, it was it was great to see you know and but the thing the beauty of, of Neil is what he always had which I didn't teach him because I, I wish I had what he's got he had a temperament and I think I think it's more luck than judgment I don't think you can make yourself the way Neil is he's just got an inner belief and a positivity and a calmness that I think is is just been blessed with that. I've never seen anyone so miserable after winning a final as Neil was when he beat you in the final out in China in 2014. I think he almost felt he was being ungrateful after all the help you had given him. And here you were, or here he was, denying you a major title. Did you speak about it afterwards? Yeah, and, you know, a few of my friends back home sort of said, uh, oh, that, don't take notice, that's rubbish. You know, he didn't mean that. He just, and I said, no, he, he actually did. And I, I could feel it. And, I, you know, I was disappointed, but he sort of made... I felt sorry for him, the fact that he couldn't enjoy a, a massive win. And and that just goes to show what Neil's all about. You know, as, as much as he, he wanted me to win a ranking event, because I won one back then, mm. as much as he wanted me to, to win something, he still had enough about him to, to finish off the two frames of the way he did. It was like ruthless, the two frames he won. And then and then he probably realised that he'd just beaten, like, you know, he's his good friend and someone he looked up to in what would have been a, the biggest occasion of my career to date. So... Yeah, no, that was genuine. It was heartfelt, and uh, yeah, it was a, it was another disappointment for me. But it just shows all what Neil's all about, really. But you didn't have long to wait, Joe, for your first ranking title. It came just a matter of months later, really. Now, this was the Players Championship or the PTC Grand Finals, but it was a different thing in those days because it was how you did in the PTC events that got you into it. Really hard to get into, and of course that means that when you go there, and it was in Thailand that year, you're playing guys who are in form, and you beat a lot of very good players, you get to the final, first to four, you're 3-0 down, you must have been thinking, oh, I'm just never going to win a tournament. But you did. How did you turn it around against Mark Williams? Well, I think what you just said is is how I managed to turn it around. I think I, I went in thinking, you know, got to do it this time, you know, can't keep losing in finals. And and Mark has been one of my best pals on the tour ever since like we started. So again, that was a a horrible match really for me. I'd, I'd you know, I'd rather play someone I don't well, there's no one I don't like, so that's going to be hard to do, but but yeah, it was one of them and I, and I think I just resigned to the fact that I was going to lose again at 3-0. You know, I'd I'd played fantastic all week. I really had played well. I'd sort of been really top of my game and got to the final and it just wasn't there again. You know, silly mistakes bad shots just and I just thought well here we go again and and I I didn't I never give up but I just sort of resigned myself to the fact that I hadn't weren't going to win and and then it changed you know 3-1 quickly became 3-2 and then 3-3 it's anyone's and uh yeah no, it was an unbelievable day and there's the handshake Joe Perry does it warm and sporting congratulations from Mark Williams a big smile on the face of Joe Perry he was 3-0 down he looked down and out but he's done it, he's turned it round, and at the age of 40, he wins the biggest title of his career. I wasn't at that tournament, but I remember watching the final on television, and when it was all over, the coverage just cut away. There was no trophy presentation. Someone later told me that the reason there was no presentation shown on TV was because there was no trophy. Is that true? That is absolutely true. And, uh, yeah, that's... You know, I've won one big event, and and that's the, the biggest disappointment... Not that it was in Thailand because I, I love the place and it's been great for me, but you know, you see pictures on the TV like you know another real good friend of mine, Mark King, when he won Northern Ireland, mm. it was just incredible, you know, and it, that them memories will live on forever. And I never got the chance to do that, you know. It was just me getting a, 
a fake big check, no trophy presentation, no fanfare. So that's that's the one disappointment about that whole thing. But but I have to say, to Jason Ferguson's credit, he promised me that I would receive a trophy, a replica trophy of the Players' Championship. I, I did have to send him well over 100 texts, I think, <laughs> reminding him that I yeah. still hadn't got it. But he was true to his word. And yeah, it was it was two or three years later, but I eventually got it and it's uh, pride of place in my snooker room. Well, he'd been waiting, I think, 23 years for a trophy. So a little longer maybe didn't hurt. But did you know when the match was over that you weren't going to be getting a trophy in the arena? No. I had no idea. It, it was like, as you've probably seen on TV how Thailand do their tournaments. They got the big chairs at mm. the back with the like the the officials, the invited guests at the back, and and it was it was a, it was a full crowd. It wasn't a big crowd, but it was full, and uh, everyone was like elated. But yeah, there was just at the end there was nothing, you know. And I I just I just think I've just missed out there. It would have been nice to have had that picture on my wall in the snooker room, or even just one where I'm just holding hands with Mark Williams before the final started or something. And you know, there's there's none of that, but. But yeah, it's it's just one of them things. It's I'm sure it wasn't intentional, it was just the way it worked out. Yeah, it's really strange. I've never heard of that happening at any other tournament. But there we go. Let's come now, Joe, to what I call the quickfire round, where I throw just a few topics at you and you just say whatever comes into your head. Favourite movie? Uh, well, I'd, I'd, I've got a couple. I like go Christ, on. Christmas time. I, I bit of love, actually. I can't, you can't be Oh, it. you're an old softie, yeah, Joe. And, and then I suppose it would be something like... What do I always watch when it's on the TV? Like, to be honest, I like pretty, it's a pretty, pretty sad question for me, this one. I, I love things like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and Mary Poppins and stuff like that. My Mary dad, Poppins, for what it is, is one of the greatest movies yeah, ever made. Remember, it's just like, perfect. I remember my dad always used to watch them and stuff like that, and I, I love them. I can't turn them off. Yeah, nothing wrong with that at all. Best holiday destination? The Caribbean. I went to St. Lucia a few few. Uh, Winters ago, we went in the in the wind in January, which was lovely to get some like winter sun and uh, yes, yeah, beautiful. The beaches are absolutely beautiful. Your toughest opponent? It's got to be Ronnie O'Sullivan. Mm. Yeah. Favorite music? I like a bit of like R and B, bit of soul, bit of swing music. Yeah, that sort of chilled out sort of stuff. You strike me as someone who could throw a few moves on the dance floor. Yeah, it normally takes three or four bottles of beer, but yeah, mm. he's, he's, then you have to like drag me off the dance floor after that. Yeah. <laughs> when you get to our age, you need to have a few drinks inside <laughs> you to do any sort of dancing. And finally, players you'd go on a night out with: uh, Barry Hawkins, Gerard Green, uh, the usual protagonists, and then you got you got people like. Like Andrew Higginson, he's good fun. He's, he's, Great lad. I've got to say, he's also the best dancer on the main mm-hmm. tour. It's phenomenal. It's okay. a joy to watch. Uh, yeah, just the, the usual protagonists, the good guys, you know, like Tom Ford's all right, Stephen Maguire, Matthew Stevens, all the boys that just don't take life too seriously. Let's talk about the Masters final then, Joe, 2017. And you came through a real gripping semi-final against Barry Hawkins, who you just mentioned there. And you ran Ronnie O'Sullivan very, very close in the final. Yeah, uh, again... I would wouldn't never call it a missed opportunity because I'm I'm big underdog playing Ronnie in any match, especially a final at the Masters. But missed opportunity in that Ronnie wasn't a hundred percent that day, especially early on. I was four one up. I had him on the ropes, and similar to the Carter game, really, I didn't didn't capitalise. I didn't sense the moment. I did sense the moment. I just didn't have it in me to sort of push on. Probably should have come out of that session six two at worst five three ahead. And that would have given me the buffer I needed because when I went back for the evening session, it was a feeling I've never felt before or since as a snooker player. 
when I stood at the top of the stairs and they announced me for the final session of the Masters and there was 2,000 in the Ali Pali, it was absolutely electric. I literally just went cold. I was so nervous and and I just didn't relax. And then I missed a couple of balls and it just made it worse. And I I was just absolutely in shock in that evening session. And had I had a two frame or a three frame buffer, it would have helped, you know, but I didn't. And it was four all and Ronnie run away to eight four. I didn't even no contest whatsoever I just made it so easy for him I, I I regrouped at the interval got back into it and then he, he sort of had to do well to win in the end but yeah it, that's, that's what was a missed opportunity I didn't again I didn't have a, even though I've been playing a long long time I hadn't experienced enough moments like that to be ready for that occasion you've been around the circuit a long time Joe and you're still a very good player I always think you're one of those players who probably thrived on the changes that came about just over a decade ago when suddenly there were a lot more tournaments to play because you love to play. You've always entered all sorts of events and the fact now that you had much more opportunity, that has perhaps really prolonged your career and enhanced your career so much. Yeah, definitely. I think there's a few of us that fall into that bracket. Uh, yeah, for a time there, we were just starved of competition. And, you know, when when you're young, when I look back at my career, when I was young... You know, my life was spent in the snooker club. Whether there was a tournament in two months' time or two weeks' time, it didn't matter. I was in the snooker club. But when you get to, like, the age I'm at now and you've got children and you've got family and you've got other commitments that you have to make time for, it's very difficult to stay that involved in snooker. You know, it's hard to drag yourself to the club and play for five hours when you haven't got a match for six weeks. So when the changes come around... We literally had tournaments like one after the other, and it and and the practice sort of didn't mean didn't ma- matter so much because you mm-hmm. was always like in touch with your with your game because you was constantly playing and and yeah it definitely definitely helped me and it sort of kept me at the top of the rankings for longer than I probably may would have done. So the game has come a long long way since about two thousand and nine two thousand and ten when the Hearn era began. You're someone who is never shy of voicing your opinions about the game and where it should be going, and you do talk a huge amount of sense. So where would you like to see things in another five or ten years from now, Joe? Yeah, no, I have been quite vocal, because, and it's only because I love the game, and you know, I, I want what's best for the game. I don't want what's best for me, I want what's best for the game. I'm not, I haven't got many years left, and I, I'm going to continue to watch snooker, you know, so I want for snooker to be in a good place. I just think we've had that golden time of tournaments one after the other and like the explosion in China and like money everywhere massive events but we've sort of hit a bit of a plateau now and and I think now could be the time to sort of revert back to type you know we, we've got a lot of guys down the bottom of the rankings that are struggling to make a living even though they're much better than the guys that were down the rankings 10 years ago but they're struggling to make a living at the game I think maybe now it might be time just to revert back to just mix it up a little bit, play a lot more tournaments under a tiered structure where there is guaranteed prize money depending on your ranking and if you lose first round. You know, just sort of make it, a, take a bit of pressure off some of the guys down the bottom because it's, it's, it's tough. It is really tough down there. And like I say, the standard now, you just pluck someone out of the rankings somewhere between 90 and 100. They're, they're phenomenal snooker players where... You couldn't always say that. From the 28th of February to the 6th of March, Snooker's top stars head to the ICC in Newport to do battle at the Bet Victor Welsh Open. For a limited time only, tickets are available from just £10. Don't miss out. Book now. Head to wst.tv 
forward slash tickets. Let's talk about a few things away from snooker then. You're always described as a real big Arsenal fan. Mark Davis is another one on the tour, of course. So was there a time when you were going to a lot of matches? Do you ever go now? Yeah, I used to go. when I was, I'm a Londoner. You know, that's why I support Arsenal. I'm not like some of these fans that support clubs that live, you know, 200 miles away. I am actually a Londoner and that's why I'm an Arsenal fan. And, and before I left London, I used to go a lot. You know, I used to go maybe like 10, 15 home games a season. When we moved, it wasn't quite so easy, but it was always, it's a bit weird really because when we was at Highbury, it was easier to get tickets for some reason. Then we Even moved, though it's a much smaller yeah, ground. Yeah, we moved to the Emirates and it was a bigger ground and it just seemed harder to get tickets. So I don't go so much now. My, my brother's also a big Arsenal fan. So we, we try and get to like three or four games a season if we can. And then if, to be honest, hasn't been really possible because snooker's been so busy the last few years. It's been quite difficult. But I think when I when I uh, maybe don't not competing so much in the snooker, I'll, uh, I'm I'm on the list to sort of like get some season tickets at Arsenal. So I think I'll start going back a lot more once my snooker career is sort of coming to an end. The greatest era in Arsenal's history has gone past now, really. It was maybe 15, 20, 25 years ago. And during that time, most of Arsenal's greatest ever players passed through the club. So who were your particular favourites or, or your favourites from another era? Yeah, when I first started going, my, my favourite player was uh, it was a guy called Paul Davis, who was like a rock in midfield. He was just like solid. And yeah, I think that's probably like how I sort of saw my snooker game. So I sort of liked Paul Davis. And then and then I liked obviously the flamboyancy of like people like Paul Merson. But my, my ultimate player at Arsenal, the one I used to just love watching week in, week out was Dennis Bergkamp. You know, it's just the greatest player I've ever seen live. And I've seen a few, you know, I've seen people like Zidane and stuff, but they didn't really perform on the night. But Bergkamp was just phenomenal. Yeah. Gaming every every single week, he was just brilliant. And him arriving at Arsenal, I guess, was really what proved to be the catalyst for the golden years that followed. You describe yourself as a Londoner there, and clearly it's very much in your voice. One of the big landmarks and traditions, I think, of London life is the cabbies. And your dad, of course, uh, has been a cabbie for a number of years in London. Is he still at it? Yeah, well, unfortunately, no, he gave his licence up. He, uh, my dad suffered a, a sort of like a bad heart attack just before the World Championship oh, qualifiers. Yeah, no, he's, it's all going all right now. You know, he, he went to, he ended up in Patworth. It was a horrible time in my life. Uh, but things are looking up. But unfortunately, he had to give his license up, and he's like, yeah, you say he's uh, been a taxi driver, London taxi driver for a long, long time, and uh, he was really proud of it. You know, I was. I, one of my things, my dad's got it. We had a snooker room years ago, and my dad's got it still. When I beat Steve Davis at the World Championship, mm. going back to that, we was in the centre page of the Sun, me and my dad, and it said like Cabby's son beats World Snooker Star or something like that. So we've still got that bit of paper, and it was a, uh, yeah. Great memory. Yeah, it's only the World Championship that you know can really bring out a story like that, and that, as I say, was the start of your time in the spotlight. And here you still are, Joe. As I say, after all these years, you're a name that nobody likes to see next to theirs in the draw because people know how dangerous an opponent you still are. But what can still be ahead for you? Would you look at it and say, if I could win one more tournament and maybe get a trophy this time, that would really set the seal on it? Yeah, yeah. This season hasn't gone well at all for me, and I'd, I'll be honest, I haven't, I haven't dealt with the whole COVID snooker situation very well I struggled last year I didn't enjoy my snooker I've started to enjoy it again this year but obviously confidence is low and it takes a while to come out of a little rut of bad form so yeah I've always thought that you know if I could still be playing on the main tour when I'm 50 that'd be a bit of a milestone that's obviously still very much in the pipeline and yeah I'd love to get another win like I say that that big win I did get I didn't get the the glory of like having my my parents there to witness it or my children you know the the pictures afterwards so yeah, one more day in the sun would be 
it would be amazing. And you've been to number eight in the world, Joe. Now, for someone who started out thinking he wasn't even good enough to be on the circuit at all, you must look back and think, I've done well here. Yeah, no, I've, I do, yeah. I, I, and I fully appreciate it. I, whenever I speak to someone, I always say how lucky I am that, you know, I've, I've got, you know, humble beginnings and, like like you say, my dad's a taxi driver, my brothers are outdoor workers. And, you know, I, I've had my whole life doing exactly what I wanted to do and doing exactly what I love. And, and I've been paid well for it, so... Yeah, I'm one of the lucky ones, without a doubt. And over the last couple of years, you've found another string to your bow because you've gone into TV work. You did some with ITV. You're very much part of the BBC team now. And I think most of us would agree pretty much from day one, you just took to it like a complete natural. So it's obviously something you really enjoy and want to do more of. Yeah, you never know. Like you, you sit, you've watched snooker for years and years and you hear the guys talking and it just seems like normal. You know, they, they know what they're talking about and they just get on with it. But when you actually get in that commentary box or the studio, it's different. You know, it, is, it takes a little bit of getting used to. And yeah, I, I hope people like take to me and they enjoy what I say and how I deliver stuff because I really enjoy it. And uh, I, I, you know, I, I don't know what I'm going to do when I finish playing snooker. I don't really want to go out and start looking for a job. You know, I, I, that's be honest, I don't want to do that. If I can stay involved in snooker, whether it be in a sort of formal capacity as a board member or something like that, or definitely the TV would be my first choice, then yeah, I'd absolutely be elated if I could carry on sort of talking about what I know best. Okay, well you talk very well about the game, Joe, as you have done here on the World Snooker Tour podcast today. So thanks very much for joining us and all the best for whatever remains in your career. Thank you very much. Next time on the World Snooker Tour podcast, it's the former Riga Masters runner-up, Mark Joyce who, among so much else, will reflect on making his long-awaited Crucible debut last year against Ronnie O'Sullivan. Ronnie's, in my eyes, probably the best player to ever pick up a cue, and to play him at the Crucible, that's something you know, you'll know you always remember, obviously, as defending champion as well. On the other side of the coin, I think you know maybe another couple of days to let it sink in and just prepare, obviously, because the qualifiers don't finish till late Wednesday night. You come back Thursday morning, and then all of a sudden you, you've drawn Ronnie defending champion, but you're on Saturday first session, so you haven't really got time to to let it sink in. Yeah, there's a bit of a learning curve in there as well. A sort of you know, people want to talk to you, and you're trying to sort of logos out. And yeah, it, like I say, if I qualify, hopefully at the end of this season again, then I'll um, I've got the experience to sort of deal with it a little bit better. So that's coming up next week on the World Snooker Tour podcast. And do remember to check out the 147. The week's top stories in 147 seconds, out every Tuesday. Until then, thanks so much for listening, and goodbye.